0: You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Live Different Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. I am going to be out traveling for a few weeks. I'm really excited uh, to go up to the rainforest for our yoga retreat with my girlfriend, Luz Garcia, which you guys have heard, who you have heard on the podcast We're going to be hosting the yoga retreat, and then I'm going to uh, speak at a conference in Hawaii, check that out, make a swing through the United States, be back in Austin for a little while. While I'm on the road, we are going to be doing something a little bit different with the podcast, and I'm uh, flattered to say that we are going to have some compilation episodes going back into the archives, and that... Somebody actually suggested, Hannah, our producer, that we go back and find clips from some of the best episodes and tease out the best travel tips, travel hacks, travel stories, uh, inspiring journeys that people have been on. I'm talking uh, people from National Geographic explorers, award-winning photographers, digital nomads authors, people who that travel has changed their life and that they've just gotten so much out of these experiences that they are here to share them with you. So I hope that this episode makes you a better traveler and we're going to go through few episodes like this and this is going to be the best of the best. So get ready for a great episode. Thank you again to Hannah for chopping this up and this is going to be something really special for you guys. So as always, uh, you can reach out to me, Matt at under30experiences.com. Let me know what you think. Uh, go ahead, if you want to interact with me on Instagram, you can follow my travels, Matt Wilson TV. And I encourage you guys to be part of our community at Under 30 Experiences. I'd love to connect. Listen in for a great episode. And thank you guys so much for listening. Today, I am continuing with our experimental episodes, a series that I've been dying to do about my personal evolution and how I can take my lessons from travel and pay them forward to other people. So these are going to be lessons from everything from our very first episode on minimalism Mm -hmm. Uh, to today's episode on becoming a digital nomad. I've just completed the third blog post which is going to be found on under30experiences.com slash blog and that is about getting into nature and hopefully this is a series that I can continue to run with if I can beat back the resistance of getting my creative work out there into the world. I wanna continue on to all the things that have helped me along my path of the last five years. I'm talking everything from starting to practice yoga and meditation to uh, advanced biohacking techniques like sequencing my genome, and uh, just all sorts of crazy habits and practices from diet and nutrition to different forms of exercise to different mindsets that I've been able to harness uh, that I think I'm ready to share with other people. And uh, I mentioned the resistance that I've had. This actually isn't easy for me. I have done... Quite a lot of interviews, uh, not just close to 75 interviews on the Live Different podcast, but I've interviewed people for years on under30ceo.com, where we had a massive audience, a half a million people every month at our peak uh, before we started Under 30 Experiences. And yeah, I have some resistance. And I think a lot of you guys, if you're listening, have had resistance to a lot of different things. And and what I mean by resistance is just that feeling inside that it's hard to get your work out, where you want to write something, you want to hit publish on that post, you want to put up a video because you think you have value to share with the world. But it's difficult. Uh, you may be thinking, I have difficulty Wondering what other people are going to say about my work. Uh, Personally, I think, oh, geez, people are going to take me as some type of uh, trying to be some type of uh, egotistical person who thinks he has it all figured out. And I stress to you that I do not have it all figured out. However, where I am today in my life is dramatically different. From where I was five to even 10 years ago now. So this has been a evolution, uh, a journey of personal development of looking inward. And as I've continued to look inward, I have then been able to see things for how they really are uh, from a much more objective point of view without all of my biases, with all of my subjectivity, from all of my conditioning that I grew up with. And that's what the Live Different podcast is all about. So I'm ready to do these episodes. So I want to get into it with you guys right now about the magic of becoming a digital nomad. Why I have a love-hate relationship with this term. So, if you hear Digital Nomad today, you'll probably think of someone who has read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week, like I did my in between my junior and senior year of college in 2007. I said, shit, this sounds pretty good. This seems like something I could get into only working out four hours a week. And, uh, in the pages of that book, there were so many quote unquote life hacks or lifestyle design tips. Uh, and Tim Ferriss really popularized this meaning, this, uh, lifestyle design and he was the one that that ran with it and so much has popped up uh, after that but it's about designing (laughs) your life it's about doing the things that you want to do regardless of what society tells you so society tells you of course the path that you have to follow go to school get a job find someone to settle down with for the rest of your life, sign up for a mortgage and a car payment, tie yourself down to one particular location. Uh, there's a great author named James Altucher. I'll link him up on the show notes at under30experiences.com/slash/blog. You can click the podcast category and see all of our past episodes and all of our show notes. But he's someone who I read in the early days, uh, at least five plus years ago. And he talked about, yeah, why would I buy a home and sink all of my cash, my capital into that, my life savings into a home, put myself in a tremendous amount of debt when I could go out and experience the world and live a minimalist life? Lifestyle, uh, or a minimalist luxury lifestyle, as the guys from Asian Efficiency like to say. I can try to link up that episode as well. Uh, but it's all about trying to do the things that you want to do in life rather than just work. That's the point. And that's what digital nomads really believe in. Now, I'm going to... Uh, tell you about the flip side of this about digital about digital nomading that makes me cringe all right so call me a a seasoned gringo I'm gonna pause as I take a sip of it's kind of embarrassing to tell you I'm not embarrassed I'm drinking bone broth right now for my gut bacteria which might make me sound like a nerd Uh, but these are the types of practices that I've evolved into to happen that have made me substantially healthier. But when you hear the term digital nomad, now to me, it's become so cliche, so overused. It's become uh, this type of cool kids club. And
2: uh,
1: I'm just not into it sometimes i'm not into scenes particularly (laughs) i told someone once uh, i'm not really into scenes unless they're my own right unless they're the ones that i've created i'm not really not usually into them uh, because it's people trying to follow a certain path uh again you know it's it's not people thinking on their own it's people thinking well shit tim ferris moved to buenos aires I have to go there. Um, And that's not true. You don't have to go there. You don't have to pack up for Eastern Europe where the cost of living is cheaper. Ah, I got a link to a great Eastern Europe uh, podcast that I did with, I'm forgetting her name right now, uh, but the blonde travel blogger, she's not just doesn't just have blonde hair, but that is her actual name. Something like that. Uh, I Apologize for forgetting her name off the top of my head Uh, But she moved to eastern europe and she talked about being a digital nomad there and what that means Uh, And it's pretty cool. It's pretty inspiring if that's what you're into This entire series is going to be about helping you find your own path and again Just because i'm going to explain what I did does not mean that you have to do it. Hopefully you find my story inspiring Uh, But (laughs) Again, don't copy me. If you want to join the Cool Kids Club and be a digital nomad, you can. But I cringe a little bit when I hear that because it's kind of becoming, it has become this badge of people who you'll find in uh, hubs like Medellin, Colombia, Chiang Mai, Thailand. You'll find in Bali. You'll find Tulum, Mexico. Uh, Acapulco, there's a nice settlement um, of, of expats, right? People who don't really live in the United States anymore. But what I try, why I cringe, right? Is because I see so many of these people and they're kind of the same people that I've tried to get away from in the New York City startup scene. Uh, they're usually stressed out. Right, and it's a bit of a badge of honor. there's some ego involved in oh, I own my own business I'm st- still stressed out, even though I'm on the road, and I'm traveling from point A to point B to point C to point d, and uh, you know somebody's going to sit next to you in a in a coffee shop right and Start talking. Hey, what, what projects are you working on? And again, nothing about the scene. I'm not trying to be judgmental, but what I've tried to get away from is that stressed out person who wants to talk to me about marketing because I don't really care. Uh, so call me a seasoned gringo, but I do cringe when I see the you know when I see people like that. Um, it's just like the hostel scene, which you can go to the hostel scene and. You know, I stay at hostels sometimes, and I certainly stayed at hostels a lot uh, back when I first started traveling, but it's the same types of conversations that you get into. Oh, what would you think of this place? Oh, it was okay. It was cool. Oh, you got to go to this place. Oh, what's it like there? Oh, it's really too expensive. Um, If you you guys have traveled in hostels, you'll know that these conversations stay pretty superficial. Uh, and so, anyway, call me a seasoned gringo, but I cringe a little bit when I when I meet people who really pride themselves on being a, a digital nomad. Uh, but, alas, it's awesome because the world is your oyster. You can move anywhere in the world. You can work from a computer. You can sit in a coffee shop, in a cafe, which is so amazing to be able to do and support yourself by running your own business you could be a freelancer you could still be a full-time employee that said to your boss look i can't do this anymore this routine is killing me this commute is killing me Uh, literally i'm not getting any younger i need a change and if you are indispensable to your company you should be able to do that I think that's a really important point here. So, And you can, of course, read more in the classic 4-Hour Workweek about different strategies. I think Tim Ferriss even gets down to email templates that you can use. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you how to do that. That's something that you'll have to figure out. I happen to figure it out, well, very early because I never had a real job. Actually, while I was reading the 4-Hour Workweek... I was interning at a hedge fund in Chicago, finding out that Wall Street was definitely not for me, and uh, I took that experience and started my own business with my very handsome co-founder, Jared O'Toole, Business Insider's One of Vince's Insider's sexiest co-founders, in fact, which I always make fun of him for. Uh, Anyway, moving on. Yeah, so I figured this out in like 2008. And when I say figured it out, I mean, I was broke for a long time, you know. But when you learn to live with less, you can, you know, being broke is not that big of a deal. Uh, If you're grinding, if you're hustling, if you are... Crushing it, like Gary Vaynerchuk would say. And you can see these are all my inspirations. These are all uh, mentors, virtual mentors. I've met most of these people in in person. I have met Tim Ferriss. I have spent a little bit of time with Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, Yeah, these people I I consider virtual mentors because I've I've followed their stuff uh, for a very long time. And I urge you guys to find virtual mentors who you really like, and when you admire them, go and see them speak. Go and take the opportunity to be able to uh, meet them. If you have questions for them, email them. Fuck, email me, mad at under thirty experiences.com, if you think I can provide value to. We are here with our very special guest, Sarah Knight. You may know Sarah from her TED Talk, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. And she has the No Fucks Given Guides, uh, a a very uh, very interesting series on how to care less, I guess, and get more of the things... Uh, out of your life that you want. She has a new book out, You Do You, How to Be Who You Are and Use What You've Got to Get What You Want. And uh, she has some really interesting ideas about creating a, a fuck budget and the not sorry method. And I, I am especially Curious to uh, to talk to Sarah today about her story because she went from living the corporate life in, in New York City and uh, rising her way up through the ranks to moving to the Dominican Republic. Uh, I was hoping that you could give people a little bit of glimpse into into the good life, let's say, or into the life <laughs> now that you, you live in the Dominican Republic. And, and please, uh, no need to over... Uh you know people ask me about life in Costa Rica and yeah it's pretty amazing and we have amazing wildlife and nature and jungle and beaches there that uh, I love spending time in and the the weather is amazing but it's also very diff- difficult uh to live in a foreign country and be far away from family so no need to sugarcoat it but tell us about your life now I'm uh, I'm curious what life is like for you in the Dominican Republic
0: Well, it is much slower. And that is something that I both think I really needed. I needed to be forced into living a less stressful life than the one that I lived in New York City. Uh, But it's also challenging because, you know, my husband and I have definitely brought our American sensibility down here. And we often don't understand why other people don't have the same sense of urgency that we do about getting particular things done. Uh, So we've been you know, trying to find a balance in that Uh, it's also been really interesting and fun to learn Spanish. I spoke French before, so it was, you know, it's slightly easier for me because I was able to use some of that language to, to figure out some of the prime Spanish a little bit faster than I might otherwise have. But that's just an ongoing daily uh, challenge, which is (laughs) interesting. And especially because when we actually built this house from the ground up and the contractor was French and the workers were Spanish speaking. And so it was a lot of uh, interesting, interesting conversations with a lot of um, arm gestures and (laughs) and things like that. Nice. Um, And, you know, the other thing is that the weather is so unpredictable. It can be absolutely beautiful for days on end, but it can just start pouring right before, you know, for example, my husband is a musician and he, you know, you can't put speakers and wires and electric guitars and things out on the beach in a tropical rainstorm. So you do end up changing plans at the last minute uh, due to the weather, due to strange events in town. Recently on my Instagram, I shared a video of about 17 cows that were in the road when we were trying to get home <laughs> the other day. Uh, so it's just, you know, one of those things where there's something new every day. It's definitely a lot more relaxed. Uh, but there, there are challenges that, were, that are very different than the ones that we faced in New York. For example, the tarantula that I found in our living room a few oh, weeks ago. Oh, Yeah. Uh, which was also documented on Instagram, and if anybody's interested in the real no-holds-barred, uh, I did write a piece for Medium called, I believe it's called Eight Things Nobody Tells You About Moving to the Caribbean, uh, in which I detail a number, of, um, a number of things that definitely don't make it onto HGTV. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, we will sure to, to link that up in, in the show notes. And I appreciate all those little tidbits from your life because there's a lot of similarities uh, between yeah. the Dominican Republic and, and Costa Rica. I am pumped to have Jordan. Previously, you may have heard him on The Art of Charm. You might have heard him on Sirius. He is starting his own podcast. I'm really excited to talk to him about that we're going to go over a handful of strategies here. Jordan is uh, really into something called social dynamics, which I'm excited to talk to him more about today. He's been a previous guest uh, on the Live Different podcast, and I've been over there on, uh, on one of his shows. We're going to talk today a little bit more about how to not get kidnapped while traveling, something like Jordan. Uh, Jordan might know a little bit about that. How do you not get kidnapped while traveling? Can you tell me this, or how do you get I mean, kidnapped I, while if traveling? I had Either that way,
0: answer, then
3: we would be in a different situation. Look, the the reason that I got kidnapped while traveling twice, once was very avoidable, and won't happen to anyone ever, and the other the other one could happen to anyone anywhere. So when I was twenty, I was in Mexico City, and I was living there. And this is this is two thousand, so it was kind of pre mobile phone, and thank God for that. Because, yes, I could have probably called for help, but, two, the driver who kidnapped me could have called for backup. So what happened was I was driving – or I was in sort of a crappy barrio area where I was staying and living. And Mexico City, if you haven't been there, it's shaped like a bowl. So the center of town, the old stuff, all the downtown area is in the middle, the lowest part of the bowl. And all the poorer people, they live on the side of the bowl and towards the top of the bowl where all the pollution rises to and sort of sticks. And that's where I was staying at the time. And so I got a taxi and it was a Volkswagen Beetle, you know, 68 Volkswagen Beetle, the green one. This is basically like that's kind of everybody's sort of that's basically a traditional taxi in Mexico City. And people were starting to go, hey, look, you got to be careful. Taxi drivers are a little bit shady, which is true in almost every country, if not every country. And I caught this taxi, and usually I take the, the brightly colored school buses with murals painted on them. I forget what they're called, but you know these, right? Where it's like, there'll be an old school bus, and it's a it's a private transportation, but it's essentially substituting mass transit, and there's like an airbrushed Mariah Carey all over the side of it. Oh, like, yeah. You know what I'm talking oh, about?
1: Oh, yeah, those are my favorite. Either colectivos or, or just the chicken buses, sometimes we call them.
3: Oh, yeah. Chicken buses, probably, yeah you'll ride with chickens or you'll ride with people that are like fighting and the driver's like, eh, whatever, 10 pesos, you know, go right. for yourself. So I, I get a taxi because I'm, I'm dressed to go out and I don't want to screw around and I want to get down further faster. And we start driving and I'm like, huh, maybe there's traffic because we're driving like around the edge of the bowl and that's kind of scary. So usually we just drive down and then we kept driving, we kept driving. And my conscious brain was like, What's going on here? And then I was getting scared and then my brain was like, don't get scared. There's probably a good reason for this. And then after a while, I was like, oh, shoot, maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't a good reason for this. Maybe it's something, ulterior motive is happening. And then your brain, you get into a battle with your own brain and you're like, do I, do I believe that this is a bad thing that's happening to me or do I rationalize that this is going to be fine? And I rationalized it for a while. Then I started saying, like, hey, why don't you just drop me off here? And the, no, 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 we're almost there. And I'm like, well, I know that's not true. And I'm like, look, man, take me back. No, 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 there's traffic. And I'm like, how does he know there's traffic? You know, this is not good. I I know something is is shady is going on. So I look and the doors are locked and I can't – the door locks are going below the surface of the door. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you can't lock up. And then I realized – sort of quietly testing the door that it's locked from the outside or it's locked locked and I can't open it from the inside. And I was like, Oh shoot, this is like a child lock. Only this is a 68 beetle. There's no child box. You know, he rigged this. So I realized I'm in a kidnap van. That's actually oh. the BW beetle. And then we stop in front of this, this house that's like all cinder blocks and it's shady and there's no street lights, and we're in the middle of the hood, like even worse hood than where I was living. So I was like, Oh shoot. You know, this is not good at all. So I I tell the driver, don't get out of the car. Don't get out of the car. And I put my arm between him and the door. You know, I'm in the backseat. He's in the front. I slide behind him. I put my arm between him and the door. He does not notice that I do this. And he goes, relax, relax, relax. I'm just going to get out and ask my friends for directions. Now I know it's bullshit because a taxi driver in Mexico City who doesn't know how to find the center of downtown but has to get out and ask his friends for directions, any friends you have living in this place, buddy, I don't want you to get out and talk to. So – he makes a fast one for the door, doesn't realize my arm is blocking between him and the door. He makes a fast one for the door, and I'm 20. I'm in really good shape. All I'm doing in Mexico is eating fricking tacos with carne asada and going to the gym. That's it. I, I probably weighed 209 pounds, and I was probably like 10% body fat at the time. By contrast, I weigh 162 right now, and I, I still look like somebody that you probably wouldn't want to I, – I hope I look like somebody that you wouldn't want to sneak up on, but, you know, you <clears throat> know. And so I wrestle with him, and you know I'm behind him, and he's probably 40 to 50 years old, and he sits in a taxi all day, and I'm 20 years old, and I hang out at the gym all day. So I'm here telling you this story. He's not. Let's just put, let's just put it that way. So after he's done fighting, I have to crawl between the two seats in the front of the VW bug because I still can't open the window, and I don't want to punch a piece of plate glass with my hand because that's a good way to get a nasty cut. It's not auto glass from the 60s, right? This is, like, just going to hurt me. So I crawl oh. between the seats. I open his door. I undo his seatbelt. I push him out of the car. Uh, actually, I don't even know if he had a seatbelt, now that I think about it. I push him out of the car. We're not moving. The car stopped. Relax. And then I try to drive the car. Well, here's the problem. It's a stick shift. I'm panicked. It's a 68 Volkswagen Beetle. There's, there's a trick to the clutch. There's a trick to the key. There's a trick to the stick. There's a trick to the steering wheel. So I realize I can't drive this thing. I can't even get this thing going. So I take the keys out, throw the keys. 2020 hindsight, not a good move. I should have kept the keys because he could have found them. But I threw them somewhere. He didn't get up to find them, thankfully. So I start running back to where we came from, or so I think. I'm running down the street, running down the street. I'm sweating through my Banana Republic chinos which is what I was wearing because it was 2000. Great. Relax. I bought this in the night. Great so decision. So I'm running, I'm wearing like, you know, lo- probably the equivalent of loafers or something, ben- banana Republic Cheetos in a light blue dress shirt. And I'm a white dude in the hood in Mexico. So I'm sweating through my clothes. I'm running. Nobody wants to stop for me because I look like a crazy person. And finally this guy stops with who I thought was his daughter, but retrospect was totally his girlfriend. And he stops and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, uh, broken Spanish. I got kidnapped by a taxi driver. And he's like, dude, what the hell, you're in the hood. And I'm like, get me out of here. And he's like, you're not getting in my car. I'm like, I'll ride in the trunk. I don't care, just get me out of here. And he's like, you can tell he's thinking cause he's a, he was a doctor, he wondered if I needed help. I was like, I'm not injured, but I need to like get out of here. And the girl's like, you can't leave him here. You can't, you can't leave him here. This is like so dangerous. And if you got kidnapped, they're going to come back and they're going to get him. Like, get... So I get in the car. They don't make me ride in the trunk. I get in the back seat. I tell them the whole story. I'm like, take me to the police station. And they go, oh, they give me this look like, oh, gringo, if you go to the police station, you're going right back here or you're going to rot in prison. And also, do you even know if that cab driver's alive? Because the narrative from their perspective is you maybe murdered a cabbie or beat one up <laughs> and you just ran away. And if the cop, cops are in on it, which is like 50-50 chance that they're in on whatever scam this is, you're going back to whatever gang hired this cabbie, and then they're going to be pissed. You know, and I'm, they're like, true, true story, what you need to do is get the hell out of here and just never come back. And that's what I did. I didn't never go back to Mexico, but I sure as hell moved out of Mexico City. So that was how my first three or six months or whatever in Mexico City ended uh, that's what that's how that ended for me, and I moved to Guadalajara. Jordan, as
1: a lawyer, I want to ask you, what happens if somebody finds themselves in jail, locked up abroad? I've never—I think that's a TV show. I have not it seen it. Uh, I am, thank you for that. Now I'm sounding like the old one here. Uh, but what do, what do you do? And even if you're not locked up abroad, I mean, people have more of a sense. When they end up in jail, whether, you know, they're they're guilty or not, and they're in their home country, okay, you probably have a good sense of what the law is if you've been around a little while and have thought about these things or, or – I don't know. You have a better sense of how things work in your home country. Basically, it's a better chance that you know the law. But if you're abroad, uh, what would you suggest for people What they just find themselves in a in a bad situation? It's
3: it's not always your fault you end up in jail. Yeah. The first thing you should do is try to contact the duty officer at the U.S. Embassy and tell them that you're in jail and they will at least try to find out where you are. And that's good, because if you if you wait for the jailer or the cops to call you an attorney, might never happen. They might never do it. They might call you a lawyer that's on kind of, hey, this is to happen for you. The other thing that you can do is if if you're living in a country like you are, I would go find an English-speaking lawyer now and put his number on speed dial and say, hey, look, if I ever get in a situation, I just want to know that I have someone to call. If you're on vacation, call the embassy. They'll try to help you. It won't be that great because, honestly, the U.S. Embassy abroad sorry diplomats you got other stuff to do they're very much not that helpful but it's your best bet but if you live in another country find one or two english-speaking lawyers ideally make friends with them take them out to dinner once every three months so that they pick up your freaking phone call at two o'clock in the morning because you did get arrested and they're the only ones who know what to do at that point whereas the embassy says I'll leave a message and somebody should get it on Monday when they come back in. And now you're in jail, you know, with dysentery for two days before anybody even comes to see you or or knows anything. You want that lawyer to run down there and go, Oh, it's a simple misunderstanding that can be rectified by helping them replace the uniform that you spilled on. And you go spilled on, Oh wait, got it, got it. Here's 50 bucks. And here's another hundred for the lawyer. Let's go get some tacos. That's how that works in some places. Uh, I remember when I was working in Panama at the U.S. Embassy, we got pulled over by the cops. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I work for the U.S. Embassy. I'm not going to stand for this. And then the other person who was in the car who worked for the embassy went, hey, are you guys hungry? And the cops were like, si, senor. And he went, is there – I know I really missed that stop sign. Maybe I should just take care of the fine right here. And they went, si, senor. And he went, how about $10? And they went, perfect. Thank you. Have a nice day. And I'm like, holy shit, I almost went to jail over that. Right or I almost like, I almost like put up an indignant fight, and he's like, "No, just give him money. It's lunchtime. That's why they pulled us over. We weren't speeding. We didn't run a stop sign. It's lunchtime. That's it." And I went, "Wow, yep. okay. I just saved myself a lot of grief."
1: Yep, I've uh, I've I've been in that very similar situation. Uh, it, my one of my first trips to Nicaragua. And we got pulled over in Managua, and I happened to be with a, a group of people. And it had it been up to me, how we were going to handle this situation at the time, I was not nearly as—you know, this was six years ago—I would have, you know, turned around and said, "All right, everybody, pass up twenty bucks. Let's give this guy what he's what he's looking for." But you know, once I started to speak to local friends who who tell me what to you know told me what to do when you get pulled over in that kind of situation and this is in no way advice for anybody but this is what happened in my situation uh, or what I was told by the local people were yes it was lunchtime and uh, yet yeah, with my li- my local friend said with my license and registration I keep a- keep a couple dollars and or, you know a couple uh, Cordovas uh, which is the Nicaraguan sure. currency. And and that's what they're looking for. And if they know that, you know, then it's all good. They're just hungry. You know, they they make very little money. Uh, and so they're just looking for a little something extra. I'm here with a very special guest, Jody Ettenberg. Jody came my way uh, by way of Chris Gilvu, the author, and any friend of Chris is a friend of ours here on the Live Different podcast. Uh, she, has, she is now celebrating 10 years at her website, LegalNomads.com. Uh, she has some really interesting perspectives from going from corporate attorney to traveling the world, building a business that she loves dearly, and now is taking a little bit of a hiatus.
4: I had always really wanted to go to Siberia, actually. That was the genesis of this whole travel for me. I, I had traveled in the past um, alone ever so often. The first trip I ever took alone was I was, I took a, a one-year degree in France and I forced myself that first weekend to go to the train station, and you know, just where I said wherever the next train is, the furthest away place I'd like to go. And, and this this French woman was just like so appalled. She was just like, "What is wrong with you?" I was like, "Just, just can I buy the ticket?" You know. <laughs> and, and I had an amazing weekend. And I often joke, you know, what if that weekend was terrible? Maybe I wouldn't offend this this world traveler. But it wasn't. It was great. And so in my time in New York, I was basically. You know, I enjoyed my life, I did go out with friends, I took vacations, but I was mostly saving to take a trip to Siberia, that was the goal. Um, And over the time, um, I basically decided it would be a one-year trip around the world instead of simply Siberia, and the Trans-Siberian trains would be part of that journey.
1: Wow, and I'm sure everybody is wondering, just like I am, why Siberia?
4: That's fair. It's a fair, question. Um Your the the reference. Chris Guillebeau, um asked me that question. Actually, I spoke at his first World Domination Summit, and he was like, "Really, Siberia?" Um, I saw a documentary about the Trans-Siberian trains when I was younger, and I was just my curiosity was piqued. I it's this this sort of crazy undertaking of building trains tracks in in these completely outlandishly, you know, isolated areas and connecting little villages along the way. And, you know, so many people died building it. It's such a a remote place. There was an amazing National Geographic story a few years ago about the one doctor who kind of hopped on the trains and got off at each Village to help people along the way. You know, that was his job. But just how remote it is and just was so fascinating. I really wanted to go. Um, Lake Baikal has the world's only freshwater seal. That seemed pretty interesting. And I just... Decided, yeah, the same way I decided to go to law school. My parents would say that uh, going to law school may not have been what I wanted, but they weren't too shocked that I didn't do a terrible job at it.
1: <laughs> right? That that wow, that's uh, that's really interesting and. We have a trip leader, actually, uh, Jono, If we have a lot of under thirty experiences alumni who listen into the podcast, so uh, shout out to to Jonna, one of our trip leaders. But he keeps asking, when are we going to do a trip to Inner Mongolia? And Yeah, uh, so I,
4: fascinating.
1: Yeah, it is. Forgive my ignorance, but that space is—is is that the same place, Siberian Inner Mongolia? I mean, at least no. they have to be close. No.
4: They are, they're not, I mean, close is relative when things are so, the landscapes you're talking about are so enormous. And, right. And, fr- and frankly, that's part of what made it so incredible. You know, I chose to go, um, I chose to take the Trans-Siberian to the Trans-Mongolian line instead of going up to Vladivostok in the north. I went, um, I went to Mongolia and then crossed into China to Erlian. Um, and it was, you know, insane in, in a million different ways. Um Inner Mongolia is actually like an autonomous region inside China, um, so it's it's not part of um, the russian the Russian area it's not part of Siberia and it's not part of Mongolia either but i I went to Mongolia itself and um ended up staying with a family of nomads in the middle of the gobi and I remember just getting up in the middle of the night and looking outside and they you know the outhouse was quite far. It was basically a box put over a hole. Um, I need to move the box to go to the washroom. And I couldn't go because there was like too many sheep and goats between me and the box. And I was just like, I quit my job. At that point, it was in September and I quit my job and left on April 1st, 2008, which is why the 10 year anniversary is coming up. And it was like one of those of many extremely surreal moments. I still had a Blackberry with me at the time. And I remember taking a photo and of all these eyes staring at me Um, and sent it to my parents and I was like this is a little extreme even for me
5: just (laughs) the
4: amount the amount of change between you know getting up every day going to my corporate job and working hard and then um, being in this completely new place where like you can't walk between the two poles inside the the yurt because it's it's not what people do it's it's considered bad superstitiously bad luck um, and so many rules like that were more animist based. It was just an amazing, fascinating experience. And, you know, I looked forward to that portion of traveling for, for like a decade, you know, and, and it really was as incredible and otherworldly as I, as I would have wanted.
1: Jeez. Uh, that, okay. That sounds like that. And I have to go back to the nomads in the Gobi. These are literally <laughs> nomadic, people. It's like something that you hear about in, uh, in Sapiens, the, the hot new book out. Uh, but could you explain a little bit more about the nomadic people?
4: Sure. It was a family, um, that was from, um, from that region. I, I actually had asked, I was trying to understand because they are nomadic, right? They, they pack up the, the yurt and they move it within seasons. And, and there's like a, a system, and it's amazing to watch them unfurl them and, and set them up. I actually wrote a piece about the history of yurts um, last year or two years ago because I was interested as well in, in just how they came to be so structurally fascinating, um, and they're decorated beautifully. And th- they said that they could move within the province of their birth. Um, that's what they told me when I was there because I asked, you know, do you have to ask permission? Or and they said that you're allowed free reign to move within where. You were born um, in that region throughout the seasons, and they had camels and horses, um, and a little satellite dish on top of the yurt to get wow. um, to get TV attached. But they were they were a family, and the first night I was there, um, the head of the household it was this gentleman. Um, it was his birthday, and so they had you know fermented mare's milk, which which is really terrible, and um, <laughs> but you know can't refuse it because it would be really um inhospitable (laughs) to do so just very rude um and they we all sat on the floor of the kitchen yurt and and ate with our hands and it was just it was it was pretty crazy and i think those are probably of all the 10 years of traveling you know people talk about the authenticity of experiences and you know there's a lot to be said about how technology has changed that how tourism has changed that and and a lot of it is not fixable uh nor should we be you know obsessively seeking out experiences like that but i found over the years the times where someone's just invited me to something are the times you put down your phone you don't do anything but sit there and soak in just how amazing it is to be witness to these to these cultural things that you just wouldn't have access to at home and from weddings to funerals to whatever it was over the years. I think that dot to connect them all uh, started for me in Mongolia like that.
1: You also said something there that I wanted to dig into about these types of authentic experiences where uh, people have the idea that when they travel, they want to go back in time or they want to see things that are just so foreign from them and then often they go places and they see the effects of globalization and it looks a little bit too much like home and then they're kind of disappointed and uh so i'm I'm curious your take because you said specifically that the point of travel or or not to put words in your mouth but basically i think what you were saying was the point of travel is not to seek or that we shouldn't seek out these type of experiences as the end goal could you mind elaborating uh where you were going with that
4: sure i mean that we can get into obviously a really long discussion about the more like meta philosophy of it and i think it's something that that there'll always be on the table to discuss there's there's no right or wrong answer there. I think for a lot of people, this kind of like obsession with finding authentic spaces comes down eventually to this kind of searching for themselves and it becomes almost a narcissistic pursuit. Um, That's certainly not everyone at all. But I think, you know, when people obsess over finding the off the beaten path places, when they only want to go places other tourists don't go and there's this kind of supercilious component to it where you know, they're better than non-normal travelers. They're better because they're doing something different or they've, they've fought harder to get to this place. Sure. You know, as with anything in life, your mileage may vary and, and your experiences are valid regardless. You know, I certainly don't have much patience for a kind of tourist or traveler who doesn't actually want to learn about where they're going. And that to me is like a bare minimum. You, If you go to just take a photo and leave again with, with no background then it's a a real wasted opportunity you know but I think the kind of obsessive hunting for unicorns traveler is doing a disservice to themselves as well because it creates this kind of bias as well um, and clouds their their value system about what travel is and I I had written a piece um, a few years ago actually maybe 2011 or 12 called what what does off the beaten path really mean because so many people were writing me to be like it's great. Your blog's great. I love the places you talk about. Like, now can you tell me the secret places you're not writing about?
0: Mm -hmm.
4: And I was, I shared a story about being on, you know, a train in on the way somewhere in Brooklyn and, and we got stuck and everyone just started telling their life story. And it was one of the more interesting, you know, traveling. We were going from A to B stories, you know, more so than some places I've traveled to just because it's about the connection to other people. And, if you truly stop and and close your eyes and think about what's around you and then open them wanting to connect in an authentic way that's far more important than the obsessive search for that place that no one else has found or that you're a more rugged traveler because you did x y or z I just think that labeling it that way takes away from the grace that comes through when you put yourself out in the world and you kind of trust in this outcome I'm going to I'm going to see what comes my way and interact with people in a way that I learn from, they learn from, and I learn something more about this world that we all live in.
1: No, I, I think that's uh, a really great point, and I had a similar discussion with uh, Gary Arnt, who is a uh, travel blogger and photographer, and we talked about how some people have an obsession with going and, and seeing poverty and. Uh, yeah. You know, that we're not trying to make a spectacle out of this, you know, out of people's misfortune, uh, if you can even, you know, if you can even call it that. And yeah, it's so important for people to be mindful when they when they go to places that, uh, yeah, you got to learn. You got to have to learn about them because just trying to do it for your Instagram just Yes, as you said, you're doing yourself a uh, a, disservice. a disservice. And the thing is yeah. everyone
4: craves personal transformation in some way. Like Gary, Gary's a friend I've known him since the beginning of my travels for the I think in we, 2010 we met in Bangkok for the first time. And um you know, he's traveled, he 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 goes to UNESCO sites. Everyone has the thing that they're looking at for me it's been food, but you can't it would be inauthentic to say Oh, I don't care about personal transformation that accompanies travel because, of course, we all, in life in general, regardless, that that is an important discovery of ourselves. But it's when people have this expectation that travel has to deliver in a very specific way. You know, whether the, the, what you're describing with him as kind of going through to to favelas or to um, poverty-stricken places and feeling this kind of white man's burden patting themselves on the back for doing so, or just seeking out something that, that is, has to be excessive for it to be, feel authentic. I think that's the problem. Anything, even the mundane, can be a beautiful transformative experience if you just stop to think about how you're interacting and, and where you are and what you're learning, at, whether it's at home or abroad. And that attitude is way more important than where you go.
1: Today I'm here with Joe DiStefano. Joe, you have some crazy letters at the end of your name. CSCS, (laughs) that's got to be your strength and conditioning uh, certification. And then you have RKC, which I'll ask you about in a second, but you are the founder of Runga, a uh, off-the-grid experience designed to educate people on health and fitness and connect them with their full potential, as well as the director of sport at Spartan Race.
2: But yeah, Runga, you know, Runga started, I was totally burned out, went on vacation, met a rock star, kind of yoga instructor, and the rest is history. You know, the next year invited a few people, and they invited a few people, and now it's a thing that people sign up for. And it's a really exclusive event, still once a year. But the philosophy is basically, let's not add, let's take away. So in other words, when we remove, you can't add a positive until you remove the negatives. So if I want to make a real impact and kind of give somebody a transformational experience, uh, you know, I've been a coach in gyms for almost 15 years, and it's like, I can't do it here. And that's why I really don't do it anymore, to be honest. It's like I can't do it here because you just came off a crazy work day. Your mind is on 300 different things. You're checking your social media, you know, during the workout. You just had, uh, you know, you're gonna have microwave food when you leave here. So it's like you gotta get people if you want to really create change, and you have the opportunity to do it. Uh, the more of those things you can remove from the equation that you don't have to counter, the better. And I, if we, if we think about this. In the context of our physical body, um, I would I would say it's the specific adaptations to impose demands principle, which is kind of the first thing you learn in exercise science school. The body gets good physically at what it practices the most. So if I'm a baseball player and I practice baseball, surprise, surprise, I get better at baseball. I don't get better at horseback riding. When I sit at a desk and I stress out eight hours a day, that becomes my sport. and walking into the gym and doing a 20 minute workout after 20 minutes of hip flexor stretching isn't enough to counteract a stressful workday, eight hours of sitting down a mind and body and, and, and internal environment that's been fueled by the wrong substrates. So I bring people to, I brought people to Costa Rica, I brought people to Panama, um, wherever we end up going and we remove all that. So there's no tech, there's no screens, there's no cell phones, no computers. Um, you're, you're, you're off the grid. There's no um, there's no bosses. There's nowhere to be. There's no responsibilities. Your responsibility is to not allow one piece of toxic food into your body for the week. Um, it's And by the way, that's not super hard to do. We, we have world-class chefs cooking literally the most delicious meals people have ever had. Um, and we do have some dry farm wine and stuff. We're not too stuffy. But um, putting yourself in an environment. So there's meditation every day. There's training every day, there's yoga every day, there's um, lectures and seminars on how to breathe, how to walk, how to run, how to avoid repetitive stress, how to biohack. Um, these folks that I bring down, like Ben Greenfield as an example, or Aaron Alexander, Scott Dolly, uh, these these experts in the field that, um, that are teaching people day in, day out through their podcasts or manual therapy work or, or what have you, uh, they're all teaching you and you're rubbing elbows with these people all week, so it's the guy you know maybe you see speak at an event or listen to his podcast and now it's like hey what do you think about this so it provides a really intimate environment for people and it's really an environment of impossible failure it's the in, the location and everything there is designed to kind of propel people and and they can really choose their own adventure so nothing is mandatory i mean you don't have to meditate in the morning or or at night you don't have to do kettlebells every day but it's all here you don't have to learn to surf but um, it's all here, and people kind of choose their own adventure, just like those books when we were a kid. It's like you can turn to page forty-seven or page fifteen. Um, you know, it's one of those types of things. So you really carve out the week for you, and all the ingredients are there to make whatever life you want to make when you get spit out the other side. So, so that's that's runga in a nutshell. But breathing is really the cornerstone of it. Like I said. Um, all the all the experts we bring have one thing in common and it's understanding the power of breath or using it in a way that that creates success in whatever discipline they teach
1: that's that's great it sounds uh so yeah, it sounds like an awesome event i really like how you said that you create i believe you said location of impossible failure and what a what a great week of course that must be but imagine that we could then do this in our own environments wherever we are we we always say for under 30 experiences it's not about what we do on our trips it's how you know how the travel changes you and then what you do after
6: today it is an honor to have chris gilliboo the author of The Art of Mountain Conformity, a book that I absolutely love, set me out on a path of travel and exploring the world and myself, as well as the $100 startup and the new book about side hustle. And he wants to take you from idea to income in 27 days, if you're sitting at your desk and you'd rather be somewhere else, well, that's a really good time to start experimenting <laughs> with a, right, a bunch exactly. of different side hustles or go and see different parts of the world. And and uh, yeah, you. I mean, it seems like a, a very generic question uh, and obviously travel helps you understand yourself so well, but... What did you learn seeing every country in the world? Obviously, that's a monster question, but I'm yeah. curious what comes to mind.
5: Well, let's let's narrow it down a little bit. I, I would say what I what I did not learn was I didn't I didn't become an expert on every country in the world or on every culture. Um, you know that wasn't really the intent. Uh, I, I I've certainly experienced a lot of different cultures. I certainly gained like at least a surface understanding of a lot of different things like that around the world, um, and that was good. But I think for me the Like the greater learning came through, just the the act of of like pursuing that quest, of identifying that as a a quest, and like kind of shutting things off around my life so that I could do that. You know, to relate to our previous question, and um, you know, just kind of working through that methodically of like 193 countries. How many countries do I have so far? How many more to go? What are the obstacles and challenges? What are the logistics that I have to sort out? Like that was really good for me, and just like the confidence that came from like, overcoming and getting to my 100th country and then getting to, like, the final 50 and counting down. Like, I felt like whatever self-awareness I have kind of came through identifying this really, really big goal and pursuing it. So I think the greatest change or the greatest learning uh, was, was much more, like, about myself than it was about me gaining, like, different knowledge about, you know, every single country or culture or people group.
6: That, that's really cool. And uh, as we were saying about... This previous question, you know, you have books, $100 Startup, Art of Nonconformity, of course, one about Side Hustle. Now, is there an overarching mission that all of your projects fall hmm. underneath?
5: Yeah, I would say the overarching mission, what I've been kind of saying in one way or another for the past decade is you don't have to live your life the way other people expect. And you know, as you go through life, you know, young young life, adolescence, college, et cetera, first jobs, you know, go, it never really stops. Like, as you go through life, there's all there's going to be all kinds of people that have these expectations or assumptions for you, and you don't have to pay attention to those. Like, there's other, there's other alternatives, there's another path, and it's not just, like, my path. I'm not just presenting a different path. I'm trying to show people, like, here are the paths that are accessible to you in your life that maybe you haven't considered. Here are some paths that other people perhaps people like you, perhaps people who are different from you have kind of opened up or unlocked. And what would it be like if you went down one of those paths? And so I think, you know, the core theme of my work essentially, like I originally chose that word nonconformity, it it is essentially about creating possibility for people and and helping them kind of step into opportunities in which they then create for themselves. So it's not so much about like a top-down thing as it is like, you know, what can you unlock? Like, what is your potential and how can you work toward achieving that?
6: If you're not feel if people are not feeling supported in their mm. lives, uh, mm. obviously you can find community, right, but, right. you know, you're trying to start your side hustle and your mom says, why are you wasting your time? Mm. Or you're trying to put something out there that you wrote and people are saying, well, come on, man, what do you think? You're a guru now. <laughs> uh, what would you tell those people?
5: Yeah, I would tell them you don't have to share this with everybody. When you're just starting out, you don't have to tell your mom about your website. You know, and I actually, actually stole this lesson from a good friend of mine, her name is Laura Sims. She talked about a pretty similar situation actually, like, you know, her mom not necessarily understanding like her desire to pursue a you know, non-traditional career. So when she made this big change, and I'll just kind of sum up the story, like there's a whole lot of detail to it, but the, when she decided to make this big change, she actually like built her whole website and like went through this whole development process of like a few months, and, you know, then when the website was actually up, like, then she was like, hey, mom, I'm doing this. So it wasn't like, hey, mom, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? You know, it was much more like, here's this thing that I'm, ha- that I'm doing. Like, there's already some interest in it. And so I guess what I'm saying is, like, if there are people that you think might be critical or might not support your work, you don't necessarily have to give up on those people in your life, like they're your friends, or your family. But you might have to reserve some of that for yourself. And ultimately, you're doing your side hustle or your life project or whatever it is for yourself, like you're choosing to invest in yourself. So I also think even though it's very valuable to to have community like we've been talking about, sometimes you have to kind of withdraw into yourself and say, like, I'm making this for me and I'm going to have ownership over it. And hopefully, you know, my friends or my family or whoever it is, it's critical, like or might be critical, like hopefully they will eventually come around. Um, which is exactly what happened with Laura's story. Like once she had the, the product out there, it was like so much easier to support it rather than just like this dream of I'm going mean, to do this thing. Um, but whether they do or they don't, like that's not really the relevant point. The relevant point is like, this is my dream. It's in my heart. I have to put it out. I know I'm going to regret it if I don't. So that's what I'm going to focus on.